giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the giant robot smashing into other giant robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen, and with me today is Carol Fowler, CEO and co-founder of Transmute. Carol, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So to start off, can you tell us a bit about Transmute? Transmute is a startup enterprise software company based in Austin, Texas, and we are focused on using blockchain technology to power highly user-centric identity solutions for the enterprise, specifically decentralized identity for the enterprise. Yeah. So can you give a little bit of an explanation maybe of some of even those concepts for folks? Definitely not me. I totally understand all those concepts, but maybe (laughs) someone else who isn't as familiar with these concepts around exactly like what is what is this technology? What are the areas it's touching? Yeah. So I think most people aren't aware of, of what decentralized identity is yet. So don't feel bad about that. And I myself have obviously made it my profession to try to explain this and, and figure out a way to commercialize this technology. But I think first, it's, it's actually more helpful to think about how we manage identity in the software space today and what is different about a blockchain database versus the databases that we use today. So you kind of heard immediately in my first sentence or decentralized identity for the enterprise. And decentralized is the key word here because that in and of itself is different than how we're managing identity today. So largely in most companies, especially within enterprises, they're relying on cloud technologies or on-prem technologies or um, databases that are very well understood um, and already very much commercialized. But for the most part, they are centralized databases, which means that all of the information about who you are, who your employees are, who your vendors are, what they can access, what they can do within your network or your ecosystem, or even just within your own kind of intranet or your own company is living in a centralized database, which makes for a single point of failure or a single attack vector, which you hear a lot of people in the blockchain space talk about. But above and beyond that, it also means that the company who's holding all this data is taking on that liability which can be scary as we see in the news with all the recent data breaches or things like Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Um, So there's a lot of kind of new ethical and morale questions that have come up around that in addition to the cybersecurity debates. But even more so than that, it enables some of the the business models that are built on more surveillance capitalism and and selling your data and and these types of things where you're not really sure, am I the customer or am I the product Mm. or am I the enabler of these business models as a consumer? And so Decentralized identity takes a very different approach. It puts the ownership and the the responsibility for managing your consent about what can happen to your data in the user's hands. So that means URI, very similar to showing our driver's license everywhere we go, could now show the same information to log into each of our apps using a decentralized identity instead of having all these separate logins, for instance, or having these separate app entities manage data about us, we would then, in a decentralized model, be in control of that data. So I think that's the big difference between centralized and decentralized. And then the other part of what Transmute does is we're not just wrapping users in privacy and consent controls. And I, I should say there's a lot of really fabulous companies out there doing that, and they're going you know straight B2C to the end bank or refugees, or there's a lot of work in the cannabis industry around this. But 
for the enterprise, it's really scary to give up responsibility or, or liability or control of data, especially if you're monetizing off of it. But we believe that there's actually business reasons and revenue gains that can be recognized by adopting this technology within the enterprise. And that's one of our biggest differentiators. So for the identity centralization, consolidation, does that mean for me as an individual, I would have one sort of instance of my identity that I'm using to sign up for Facebook or to sign up for my bank or that my company has in our employee database? Yeah, so it's it's a good question. And you're getting a little bit at the heart of it, which is that that would reduce friction and your user experience to be able to have one identity that you're showing to each of these parties would be a lot better and a lot smoother. But in addition to that, you want to make sure that you're able to protect or provision access to only the parts of your identity that are relevant to that transaction. So identity is very contextual, right? Like we're fluid. And um, when I'm sitting here talking today as the CEO and co-founder of Transmute, it's a little bit different than when I'm playing volleyball on the weekends. Very different things go into how I'm conveying that identity and what's relevant to that transaction. So under this decentralized model, you're actually able to selectively disclose the elements of your identity that are relevant to that transaction, which means then when you sign into, say, Facebook, in a world where this model is implemented with Facebook, you would only need to authorize the minimum amount of data necessary to prove that you are who you are and you can get that account. Likewise, you hear the example a lot of if you walk into a bar under a decentralized identity model, you would be able to prove that you're more than 21 without giving away your eye color, your height, or kind of all the other, your address, the other elements that aren't really needed for that transaction. So first part, yes, it's it's more efficient and you now have, um, you get to be kind of the holder of the truth about your identity. Um, but secondly, you get to disclose only what's necessary to get whatever you need done. And did you say that you're approaching it from the enterprise angle? Yes. So that's one of the biggest differentiators about Transmute is we're focused on the enterprise instead of going straight to the consumer. Is that because that end of it is almost more difficult to figure out how it benefits companies. Because as far as benefiting the individual, it makes a lot of sense. But coming from an enterprise perspective, you know, how are you figuring out how that fits into ongoing business practices and workflows and operations and making it beneficial and not a hindrance or, or something to, to that feels like maybe a nag or an extra thing you have to take care of? I don't know if it's harder. It depends how you're looking at the problem. So I think here it might make sense to give you a little context of where we started. So we actually started a couple years ago and we're also building a B2C application or we were building a decentralized identity mobile app that was for refugees. And in particular, the use case we looked at, which we deployed in a hackathon and only a couple more, more times after that, was for Syrian refugees entering Germany. So we were able to quantify, you know, how would this expedite their asylum-seeking process? How could we bring in their perhaps professional credentials and make them integrate into society better, et cetera? But ultimately, we were Americans without um, a full understanding of what was going on there. And on top of that, at the time, we started getting a lot of interest from enterprises and understanding blockchain technology at all. Hmm. And so effectively, what happened is we, we got some early consulting work and consulting revenue and built some custom proof of concepts for a few different companies and 
learned that identity was the common denominator among them um, and that you couldn't build any software application without considering identity. So we started to think of identity as kind of the gene or the atom of software applications. And then when we got to the end of those proof of concepts and had these really cool, fully decentralized applications, the enterprise said, well, this is great, but it's not portable to my Azure instance or my Oracle Cloud instance. And Mm -hmm. so that was kind of our first signal that, oh, this isn't actually how novel technology is commercialized or how it's adopted. So we took a step back. We looked at our core values, which have a lot to do with a commitment to open source technology and privacy controls for the users and asked ourselves, okay, what is the market here? Why would an enterprise buy this? And do we as a startup have the capacity, if we're not focused on the enterprise, to educate the masses and kind of instigate behavior change across society to use this technology? And I think there the answer is absolutely not. We're we're a very small startup, very technology first. I I think that's a big undertaking. And you can look at companies like Apple who have really been able to do that and, and educate us on the concept of a digital wallet really effectively. But comparing that to a startup's resources is very different. Then when we looked at, okay, why do enterprises want this to integrate with their Azure instance? Then you start to understand that they've spent millions, if not billions, in their existing IT infrastructure. That kind of led us to following the trajectory of cloud adoption and how it's taken more than a couple decades. And even where it's disrupted, it hasn't totally displaced on-prem or totally eliminated it. Mm -hmm. And so it became really obvious that it not only is the enterprise, at least here in the West, where the users are, (laughs) it is less of a behavior change. And the way that technologies are commercialized here are largely through them driving adoption. And that's when we realized to focus on the enterprise meant that we needed to integrate with their existing infrastructure. We needed to be able to reduce friction between them and their users. And we needed to connect the value that decentralized identity can provide to their business model, to their cost and revenue drivers. And so that is why we're focused on that. So what are those elements that you're integrating with, if you can talk about that? Yeah, totally. So um, I use blockchain because it's a buzzword and it's definitely one of the technologies that we use. It often gets you in the door, but it's certainly not the only thing in our stack. So we combine blockchain technology with public key cryptography and public-private clouds to create Transmute ID, which is our solution. And then when we go into the enterprise, when we try to figure out, is this solution fit to solve some of their problems? We're largely, at this point, after a lot of market research, realize that we're talking about business process optimization problems. So really unsexy, but very connected to your revenue and your margins. So we typically focus on three different questions to figure out if our solution is a good fit. And the first one is, is privacy or selective disclosure really important for the problem that you're solving? So kind of after we have all the problems that they want to solve on the table, we ask that question. Um, The second question is, is there a high burden of coordination to get this job done. So you can think of like a supply chain logistics company where, or a carrier where they're interfacing with drivers and brokers and shippers and various ports and lots of different types of federal authorities. They also have devices and IoT devices involved. These are really high burden of coordination. And then the last question is, is traceability or auditability really important or mission critical? And generally it's worth diving in if the answer to any of those is yes. But the use cases we've worked on so far and where we've deployed Transmit ID, generally the answer to all three is yes. And supply chain logistics is the first space that we have deployed this in. Okay, that was gonna be my next question (laughs) is you gave that example and wondering if you are being industry and use case focused or if you're 
kind of taking any meeting and laying out these three questions and, and seeing what happens? Yeah, so I think definitely at the beginning, like a lot of startups, especially because our early revenue is focused on more consultative or customized applications, we were taking meetings kind of across the board. Where we're at now is we have a keen recognition that identity technology is at the infrastructure layer. So this is horizontal across industries. Identity providers today, like SailPoint or Okta or any of them you can think of, are selling across industries. And so I would say we have application across them, but we recognize that there needs to be a focus and we have to kind of hook into the market somehow. And we chose supply chain logistics as our outbound kind of interest and focus And we do a little work in mobility as well for the same reasons, because these are spaces that are rapidly digitizing or um, experiencing a lot of business model change, kind of like mobility, um, where it used to be just transportation. Now we have a lot of mobility services and people use all of them. And so you need identities that are portable across these heterogeneous services. The same thing's going on in supply chain, but they're even more archaic and doing a lot of things manually. And a truck driver doesn't work for just one carrier. And so he also has to port his credentials across heterogeneous environments. And in both spaces, device identities like the vehicles themselves or temperature sensors in a truck also are offering part of the story when you're trying to figure out who is liable for taking this box of oranges, say, from point A to point B. So not only do they meet the high coordination burden and the privacy thing, because you have people in their individual PII transporting across these services, but they also stand to lose a lot of money when liability is unclear. So, you know, why did those oranges spoil? Is it the truck driver's fault? Is it the temperature sensor's fault? Is it someone else's fault that has touched these these goods kind of en route? And in fact, in supply chain logistics, we found that almost 50% of containers are basically lost or delayed because of miscommunication. And then on top of that, fully digitized and fully integrated supply chains tend to achieve up to 20% more revenue than their counterparts or their competitors who aren't. And so it's a prime opportunity to enter a market that is already experiencing a lot of change and already has each of the, the elements that are really important and that this technology addresses kind of sitting out there exposed. <laughs> so you mentioned you have customers and revenue, which you know doesn't go without out saying at an early stage. Do you have a specific type of buyer and a specific type of company profile that you're seeing across the customer base? Yeah. So I would say initially where we talk a lot about the enterprise, um, we've actually recognized over the last year as we've begun to deploy and test this with logistics companies that there is more demand than we thought with small to mid-sized businesses who are already part of some of these ecosystems. So I'll give you an example. Um, We spent some time with Oracle at a conference last year in Singapore called Open World, and we were specifically trying to tap the supply chain logistics market there. We had heard and read a lot about how advanced they were, and so we were curious how our solution would be received. And in those circumstances, there were a lot of small to mid-sized companies who were digitizing aspects of the supply chains in Asia Pacific, but hadn't accounted for, say, the human identity piece. So they were very interested in a more affordable solution that isn't just at the enterprise tier, but still use the same kind of administrative dashboard, a web app base that they can log in and manage. 
themselves, but they don't need as much customization or they may not have an existing solution to integrate with. And so I would say we're exploring whether or not that is part of our customer profile and we're user testing with companies like that today. And in the next couple months, we're rolling out a freemium kind of B2C application with some limited functionality that lets some of these small to mid-sized leads in our pipeline play with the app, test it, and decide if that works for them. So that's kind of our way of tapping to see what you know, what is the market outside of the enterprise? That was really exciting for us as well, because we learned that the solution is received different based on geography and that different parts of the world are at different stages and kind of digitizing their supply chains or moving to mobility models. So I would say that for one. And then the other thing that we focused a lot on is we've gotten a lot of inbound leads who are not from supply chain logistics or mobility. And we've also spent a lot of time working with some of the emerging standards groups in our space, in particular, the W3C and their decentralized identity um, or their DID spec and verifiable credentials groups, and then the decentralized identity foundation. And under those groups, we're able to collaborate with larger partners who are just more broad in the IT services business. um, And in particular, Microsoft under the decentralized identity foundation, where we are both working on a scalable decentralized identity protocol that will effectively replace identity methods without diving too into the technical weeds, but identity <laughs> methods like in Ethereum and Ether did to basically support much higher transaction volume. And so with partners like that, we are confident and have already begun to explore use cases that aren't just in supply chain logistics. But I would say we haven't, we're not adding those to kind of what we're focusing our outbound resources on yet today. Right. Yeah, I was curious what your thoughts are on your go-to-market strategy, because obviously, as a small player, it can be really difficult to have those calls with large enterprise companies. So, you know, it is typical to do a more partner-based strategy, and it sounds like that's part of what you're doing today through Microsoft and then large IT service organizations. So we built relationships, again, with like Microsoft is under the Decentralized Identity Foundation and and the W3C and Oracle through their um, global startup ecosystem has provided a lot of exposure and a lot of resources to experiment and pilot use cases outside of what we see as the lower hanging fruit. And so I think it's absolutely critical um, in emerging tech to be involved with the standards bodies Mm -hmm. and to develop partners who can support either the resources that you need to, say, host some of these applications and deployments or to experiment on some of the more futuristic applications. And so our involvement in both places has really helped us be able to answer the question, you know, you're a startup, why should I trust you? Will you be around? And we can point to standards work we've done with some of these large organizations and say, look, like, they're adopting these same standards. We've worked on them together. This technology is going to be around. The whole community has a commitment to keeping these standards open source and accessible and evolving. And also we may be small, but we have these partners to help implement. Um, So in addition to the larger companies, like I mentioned, we do have some smaller implementation partners as well who can take our technology and do more customized things with it if and when opportunities arise that exceed our capacity in the near term. And what does your team look like today? So we're pretty small today. We're only a team of five. We've been around formally since March 2017. So we're about two years old and we're very tech heavy. So we have a head of product. We have three engineers. One's my co-founder and CTO. um, And then we have me. And my background is in technical sales and business development, largely in the medical semiconductor space or the biotech space prior to this 
which always gets kind of a weird look, given that it's not only hardware, but also seems really far away from blockchain. But it's it's actually exactly what brought me to the space and, and got me interested in um, data privacy and personal data rights. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about like what that connection is? Yeah. So basically, in my last role, I worked for a startup that was here in Austin. It was a semiconductor startup called Novati Technologies and a fab that in the 80s and 90s used to be Semitech, which for anyone listening who's familiar with the Semicon world, you'll know that a lot of the commodity chips and the copper backends for those chips were pioneered here in Austin at Semitech a long time ago. Um, so I feel like a lot of people forgot about that space. But what was happening in Austin about five years ago at Novati is um, we were running a DoD trusted foundry and we had a large defense portfolio of some really cool innovations coming out of the DoD. And then we had a biotech or medical electronics portfolio. And I was in charge of expanding that portfolio. And when I came on, we had only a couple um, genetic sequencing companies as customers. And we had, um, I think, a couple other biosensor companies or like implantable device companies. And I was basically tasked with figuring out what does the rest of that market look like? How can we capitalize on that and kind of repurpose some of the same technologies in the semi-space for biotech? And what ended up happening is we expanded the genetic sequencing part of the portfolio a lot. And I was able to engage pretty much all of the active or the big players. And at the time, this was very few. So a lot of people think of 23andMe, but I'm, I'm talking about the larger companies that were actually, that actually manufacture the sequencers and then the chips that your blood or your spit or whatever your DNA gets put on. And so we engaged several of those customers. And in that process, I had the opportunity to have my full genome sequenced. And this is a terabyte of data and it's a lot of data and there's not many, and at the time, even less people who can interpret this. And so I have been trying to get a hold of that data for a really long time. And, yeah. <laughs> and you get kind of, at, at the time, the program was called Understand Your Genome. And I won it at a conference. Um, and I think I was one of maybe two people in the world to have this done for free. And the other one was this awesome Harvard researcher that I met and she was a twin and they wrote a lot of papers about her because she wanted the sequence done, but her twin didn't. So I was very interested in this. I'm very interested in quantified self generally. So I went through with it, very exciting process, but I wanted to own the actual data. And we kept kind of going in circles around, okay, if you participate in these research studies, we'll release the data, or if you send us a hard drive, or et cetera, et cetera. And so I kept doing that. And then I started observing the different business models that were spitting out, like Helix, where it's kind of like the iTunes for your genome, where they'll sequence it for a nominal fee, but now there's like apps or people you pay to get specific slices of your genome interpreted. Like, do I have a BRCA gene for breast cancer? I would pay for that. Mm -hmm. And that just didn't sit well with me. I, at this point, understood how little we actually know about the genome and it as the, kind of the genome as a final frontier. My co-founder and I were doing hackathons. He's very into cybersecurity. So just understanding concerns about business models that are built on your most intimate data. I wanted to see something where I had more control over who could access that and I would actually own it's effectively me floating around in some database. And so that's really what got me interested in Ethereum specifically. I knew about Bitcoin for a really long time, played a little bit in that space, but Ethereum um, and the, the smart contract capability really presented itself. And I still believe this as maybe the only time in our lifetime where we have an opportunity to totally reconstruct how we do business and how we transact. And in particular, a lot of people talk about what can we automate, like what can we codify and, and make easier. But I'm more interested in like 
what can we codify out? Like what kind of bias can we engineer away or what kinds of rights can we assure ourselves in the digital world because of this technology? And so that's a really long-winded answer to how I became interested. No, that's a fascinating story. And obviously can see the, the connection. And it seems like also there's a big piece about education too mm-hmm. in understanding how your data, how our data is used. And I imagine there's also an education component as you're talking to organizations who are are thinking about this, they might not understand the the full capabilities that you're seeing. Yeah, I think education around all of this is really, really huge. And it's something as CEO and I'm fundraising and constantly having to sell the vision, obviously, to new employee recruits and stakeholders and I'm constantly thinking about how to convey really the way the world is changing and and the way that business models are changing and how this technology can help you basically future-proof your brand to remain relevant in a a world where our identities and and the people that move among the applications and services products that we're providing has to be more seamless. And in a world where regulations are going to enforce this, I think um, GDPR being the most popular example. And when you're starting the company, who did you co-found with? Yeah, so um, I have two co-founders. One is an advisor today and one is my um, CTO today. Eric is our advisor and Ori Steele is our CTO. Um, And honestly, we were friends. Ori and Eric were working together at a healthcare IT startup. I had met them through other founder friends and I was working years ago and um, when I was in business school and working on a different biotech startup. And so we honestly kept doing hackathons on the side, and, and that is a fun experience. I paid off a fair amount of my business school degree winning hackathons because pretty much nobody in business shows up to hackathons. Uh, I don't know about where wow. you are, that's, but not that's a in hot Austin. Tip. That's a yeah, hot not tip. in Austin. And if anyone who goes to hackathons knows, everyone shows up, and on Friday night, they tell you exactly what they're going to pitch exactly what they're going to work on and ask you to join their team. And so I would just listen and then or Eric would tell me what they were going to build, or I would tell them if there was a use case that really stuck out to me. But ultimately, I would just spend the weekend researching real data and building a business model and a business use case and, and just showing up with something that was not perfect, but a little more polished than maybe the all engineering teams would. And so... MVP. This, yeah. So that <laughs> that's how we got started. And it was really fun. And it's how I bought my mountain bike and paid off some of business school. And here we are. <laughs> So yeah, I'd love to learn a little bit more about like the business journey too. Were you completely working off hackathon funds? Did you raise? Did you go to accelerator? Like what were you thinking about and and what did you end up doing? Yeah, so I think all of the above so far and then some. So um, we started and, and won the first blockchain hackathon with the refugee identity application I talked about earlier in the fall of 2016. I think it was September, October. And Daimler had sponsored that and they, they um, subsidized some of our office space early on through an accelerator they had here in Austin or kind of like an incubator space called Mobility X, which was at Capital Factory which is kind of the hub of entrepreneurship in Austin. And so we didn't quit our jobs for almost an entire year after that hackathon. We garnered significant interest. We did paid consulting and proof of concepts. We accidentally did lots of free consulting and a few free (laughs) concepts. And really, this was also at the time where the crypto craze was peaking. Mm. And so we wrote our white paper. We had, based on all the consulting work we'd done, we had this vision of a platform that made it really easy to build these applications that kind of bridged both 
centralized public cloud and decentralized technology really easily. So we were pitching it as kind of the Heroku for the blockchain world or just a, um, a hybrid application platform. So that was great. And we I managed to raise our first a little over a million from a global syndicate who invested in tokens at the time and Techstars here in Austin. And the goal was that this was an early or pre-seed investment that helped us model the economics of this cryptocurrency, that helped us vet really did we need it, and helped us build the team and then also tap the market and figure out, okay, are we really going to have customers as we transition from this services to a product model? So that was really exciting. And we, we finished Techstars last April, so April 2018, and hired our, our head of product and built our small team and started doing just that. So I spent a lot of time with lawyers trying to figure out what is the most legally compliant path forward. We mm. are Delaware C Corp and we want to stay on shore. And you know, we had my co-founder and one of our other engineers really working on the token economic modeling. And then myself and the head of product really focusing on, are there buyers for this? And what we found was really interesting. I First, what really stuck out was the demand for better identity tools and more portable identity, which we've already talked a lot about. The other thing that was not what we expected was that we couldn't find any enterprise or established company market demand for distributed storage and compute functions, or that functionality rather in the platform. And that is what we needed the token to secure. So with all of that in mind, last fall, we kind of wrapped up all of those efforts. We've done well over 100 market interviews. We completely modeled this. We even found what we thought was the right path forward legally to actually mint the tokens and sell them. But when you find the data that you're not going to have customers for that, or that the part of your product that requires a unique, brand new kind of security isn't going to have customers, you probably shouldn't go that route. So I looked at that data and basically went back to our investors and said, look, incentives are not aligned based on what we found. Um, the good news is what we found demand for is the part we'd already built, because again, you can't build anything without addressing identity. And so we think we need to just convert you to equity and productize this and take it to market. And that is where we are today. So we have our beta released. We've been talking a lot about heading towards the SaaS market and offering a basic freemium application. And I'm getting ready to raise our, our first seed round or our priced round later this year. That's a really powerful story, I think, about why you need to do your market interviews. <laughs> yes. Because I'm sure that even though you were doing that due diligence, a big part of you all were kind of bought in to the, this concept that you were moving forward with the tokens. Oh, yes. And I think when you see you know peers in the space or companies who are a little farther along, especially in the crypto world, and we were going through Techstars and we were their first kind of leap in that, that world. And they have lots of other really stellar token investments now, I think. But you know, we understood that we were doing something entirely new. And on one side of the kind of tracks, we were looking at all the regular startups and regular startup problems of which no blockchain company is a stranger to either. You still have to figure out like who's going to buy it. What is the product? How are you going to market it? Do you have like finance expertise? Like all the regular startup problems are one thing. And we had those two. And then we look on the other side of the tracks and you're like, but some of these people have giant like war chests is what mm -hmm. everyone calls them in the space. You know, they raise like all the rounds up front and like they can really just kind of go full steam ahead and experiment across the board. And that would be a dream for failing fast and failing often and like really figuring it out. But ultimately, I think especially my, my CTO and I have had extensive experience at startups that have failed that had nothing to do with the technology or product. And we understood that tiered investing in the VC model exists to de-risk your business. And so regardless of how we were going to get the financing to achieve this mission, we knew that we wanted 
to commercialize better privacy controls for users. We knew that the enterprise was the way to actually make sure the stuff got adopted. And we also knew that we had to de-risk it. And basically what we found when we went to go de-risk it was that it wasn't exactly going to work exactly how we thought it would. And so you just make changes from there. So early on, you went to Capital Factory. Was that a program or are you just sharing space? What, what did that time look like? that time, both me and my two co-founders were all still had full-time jobs. So we had this office space at Capital Factory. We spent a lot of time taking consulting calls or talking to investors or potential partners during lunch, really early, on weekends, at night, and would pop in a Capital Factory where we were hosting some of the Austin Ethereum meetups and some other kind of local networking events. And it was definitely like an incubation. I think they called it the Mobility Accelerator. And we got, we were afforded all the resources of Capital Factory, which has their own accelerator, but also has like an entire mentor network and things Mm -hmm. similar to Techstars. But instead of putting you in this very time constrained program, it's like you have, you know, subsidized space for a little while and you have access to all these resources. And so that was really helpful in us getting our early customers and early traction um, and just figuring out exactly what we were going to do. And then once once we entered Techstars last year, we were all full-time and had just raised our pre-seed. And so we were fully committed at that point. And that was very much a, a fast, really um, rigorous accelerator program. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that too. How much time do you spend in the Techstars program? And what does it actually look like? What are some of the, the resources you took advantage of? Techstars was amazing. When I got into it, so Ori had already been through Techstars in 2014 with a company that didn't work out and then had joined another Techstars company from his class, which is where he met Eric, which ultimately had had a really great exit. And so I knew Techstars and was kind of involved through friends in the community. And one of our advisors strongly recommended we look at this program. And so we had um, the end through our advisors and through Ori's experience. And at first I was skeptical because I was like, hey, Ori's already done this. You know, I've been to business school. Well, we're going to figure it out. But I'm so, so glad we did it. The, well, there's so many value adds, but one of the biggest was just just the sheer level of meetings and kind of the ability to practice. I think we practice our pitch like 120 times in the first three weeks. Like wow. we call it mentor madness. And you're coming in and like, this is when I realized, you know, at first it was like, oh, no one's asking questions and they all want to know because it's blockchain. And then like a couple of days into it, you realize this is terrible. Nobody's asking any questions. <laughs> Nobody understands what I'm saying. My pitch isn't getting through. Like just the sheer kind of both like ego obliteration about your idea, like <laughs> learning like what you need to be prepared for emotionally to just actually get better and achieve your mission as part of it. And then kind of just the, the way they put you through it gets you really ready for fundraising and hiring and like really high pressure deadlines. Um, And then they also spend a lot of time focused on kind of formulas for your business. So your revenue formula or like how you measure your business and it's intense in the program and takes, I think all companies a little while to realize that these are just templates you should customize for your own business because you will, you know, report on KPIs every week. And at first, like all the B2B companies try to fit into the B2C companies mold. And then like halfway through the program, everyone kind of sighs <laughs> in relief and is like, oh, I get it. I'm supposed to adapt this <laughs> for what we're doing. But all of those habits have stayed. Like we run super strict, like KPI and OKR reporting and like 
super strict, agile rituals. And, and I would say it's because of how much Techstars impressed upon us at the beginning. It's like, if you want to build an engine that's better than everyone else's and runs really smoothly and looks like it could be dropped into an even bigger engine seamlessly, you have to start now from the ground up. So those are all really tactical value adds. And then I can't say enough good things about having nine other CEOs who are not in non-competing businesses who are going through some of the same things. Like, Support group. Yes, yes. I can't overstate enough how, how awesome that part is. Are you from Austin originally? Uh, no. So I'm originally from Victoria, Texas, which is about two and a half hours southeast of Austin, a little north of Corpus, closer to the coast. But I've been in Austin for a little over um, a decade now. How is Austin for building a startup? Yeah. So I think Austin's great for building a startup. I'm biased, um, but I will also say I worked in economic development at the Austin Chamber of Commerce for a little while while I was in business school. Um, And so I know Austin. And if you just go to San Francisco and then come to Austin, you'll realize just how much cheaper it is. And then on top of that, I think Austin has this I don't know if it's because we're in Texas, but we really are friendlier. And like, if I want to go sit in a state legislator's office and ask them questions about the research they're doing on their digital driver's licenses, things, I can just walk a couple blocks from Capital Factory and do that. Or if I need to get a hold of, I've had investors and VCs spend hours with me when when we were raising on token, they, their thesis wouldn't even let them invest and help optimize what I was working on or give me feedback because they exited companies who are in a similar space. And I just don't feel like there's as much of an open door policy across Mm. the whole ecosystem in other places. And I don't know if that's because we're still kind of a burgeoning startup hub or if it's just because of the way Austin is. But I I would say it's it's a really accessible community. And that's been awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like there's a strong sense of support in building that community. So you've been there over a decade, you said? Yeah, I think a little over a decade. I went to, or in the area, the region, I I went to undergrad at Southwestern University, which is in Georgetown, Texas, about 30 or 40 minutes north of Austin and have been trying to get to Austin to live in Austin ever since. And you said you were doing biotech and were working at the Chamber of Commerce and up to today where you're now CEO, co-founder of a blockchain startup. How have you seen the community evolve or, you know, companies move in? What's been some of that change? Yeah. So I think Austin is just one of the fastest growing metros in the U.S., if not still the fastest. So I've seen it grow a lot. It's interesting from an economic development perspective, because honestly, the only reason I was in that role is because I thought, you know, this would practice kind of sales and strategic partnership skills, but really everyone wants to be in Austin. So when you're in economic development in Austin, you're dealing with a lot of really big name software startups who want to relocate or want to move, you know, open a branch. And so it's actually a lot about connecting them to real estate. And I have not seen that growth really slow down since I've been here. And then as it relates to the startup community in particular, Techstars, I think, launched their first accelerator here in 2014. We now have, I think, Sputnik and kind of countless accelerators. I can't even think of all all the names of them and countless co-working spaces. There's an obvious number um, of startups who are not just software, who are more hardware or life sciences who are popping up. And it seems like we're getting more capital. You see announcements every day of different different VCs opening or relocating here. And you can definitely see it. I will say the other thing you can see, and this is kind of, I think, evident in our 
relationship early on with Daimler and then being part of the Oracle startup ecosystem. All the enterprises seem to have their own startup hubs that are popping up in Austin and they're they're locating them like at Capital Factory or in relationship to the broader startup ecosystem instead of keeping them in house, which I think is is notable. And then obviously there's South by Southwest, which comes oh, through yes. every year. <laughs> And you've got this influx of startups and entrepreneurs and investors who are are coming in and probably some of them just sticking around. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been involved in South by Southwest and how has that impacted the company at all, if any? Yeah, so last year I was an advisor on the blockchain and crypto and then the enterprise software tracks, which is really exciting and just awesome to get to read all the proposals or be part of that process and kind of see how the market's been moving over time. And then the year before that, I think our team collectively had like seven, six or seven speaking spots. And it was kind of crazy. So South by definitely brings a lot of people and South by is also pretty exceptional at keeping a pulse check on emerging tech. So blockchain has been a big part of South by for the last several or at least the last three or four years. And there's a stark difference. So the year we had a lot of speaking, there was a lot of speculation. There's tons of um, crypto involved. Last year was way more about like product designers and enterprise use cases or like what are the pilots? Like how is this actually being leveraged? And then in general, South by brings a lot of attention to spaces that are, I mean, for instance, there's an entire cannabis track and obviously that's not legal or functioning here in Texas, but it's it's interesting to see that a Texas-based festival has an entire track dedicated mm. to an entire emerging industry in other states. And we still have a healthcare specific track. They, they had a branch that was just like sports tech with a focus on basically head injury and really novel technology for reducing concussions. And so like kind of, it kind of follows the path of like what was going on socioeconomically too. Like what is the hot topic of the time? So this year we had a lot around politics um, and a lot around immigration in the last two years um, since that's been a really hot topic. And so I think South by, it drives a lot. It's one of the most exhausting conferences you could ever go to. So this year, I actually think was one of the best for Transmute, even though we didn't have a lot of formal speaking. We participated in a lot of the Defense Innovation Center's launch and in a lot of more private events that didn't require a badge. And that is very much thanks to our Techstars and Capital Factory Network who got us in those rooms. But those were some really, really valuable connections. Whereas I think before it's it's a lot of PR and exhaustion, and then you have to sift through what's valuable after that. Yeah. So you mentioned that previously the focus was more on speculation around blockchain and crypto. And I wonder for you as a resident expert today, are there still areas of blockchain and crypto that you see as hype that maybe you would warn people against getting too invested in or things that are being oversold? I'm sure there are some. Um, I can tell you how we're trying to cut through the noise probably more easily. Um, so I actually feel very relieved that I have the kind of team that even when we see data that wasn't what we expected, we recalibrate and do whatever we can to realign interests like we did with the tokens converting to equity. Now, I don't pay so much attention to any of the token stuff because not that I don't need to know about it, but I need to know about different things. And I'm researching different parts of the enterprise software market instead of focus on crypto. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the biggest learnings in that was watching this and peers in this space, not necessarily even blockchain, but just 
when you're really in love with what you're building and you're really obsessed with it and you really want to achieve the mission, it's really easy to see data you don't like and throw it out. And I don't think that's specific to the blockchain space, but there's lots of conversation around conflating um, a utility token and a security token. And everyone has been holding their breath for SEC announcements and you're seeing a lot of Twitter explode over that today. And yesterday, and I haven't even gotten to reading those announcements, but for (laughs) us, real time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, But for us, it was, you know, realizing that we couldn't conflate a store of value and a medium of exchange in our platform. And then on top of that, who cares if you have the economics perfect, if there's no customer demand, and then the enterprises you want to sell to aren't even looking or investing in the space today, then you can't really make promises about within five years or 10 years, like there's no way to know. And so for me, it was more about just forget hype, tap the market, do the same normal things you need to do to evaluate whether or not it's a real opportunity before you pursue it. And I think a lot of projects didn't do that early on. We ourselves, along with a lot of companies, took us a while to get like a product person, someone who understood how to tap the market and feed technical requirements based on that. And now like at DevCon last year, there were way more designers, way more product people, which was really, really cool to see. Um, So I would say kind of just going back to first principles. And then one statistic I heard at South by Southwest, not this year, but last year, and I want to say it was someone from Status Group, maybe it was Emma. She was a great speaker and she quoted us some statistic about the number of projects who had done a token sale who had raised on average $50 million and on average $100 million. And I, it was, this is definitely not perfectly said, but it was something about only two to 4% of them had active GitHub repos. So the other thing I would say is just go look at their commits. Even if they're small, if they're committed and they're like gaining traction, there's going to be a lot of commits and you will see activity on the product being built. Granted, if it's all closed source, it's a different story, but a lot of what's going on in the blockchain space is open source. And so I would say, yeah, just going back to first principles, got to find a customer before there's a reason to do much else. And then just look at their GitHub. That will tell you a lot. Yeah. And I'm hearing, you know, everything is situational. Do your research and don't get overly excited just because it's the hot thing. Yeah, totally. So what's next for Transmute? So Transmute right now, we are in user testing. So we moved office spaces um, for the summer to the Austin Center for Design, where there's lots of product and product people that are doing a lot of user testing for us. We're also doing a lot of user testing specifically in the ground freight and supply chain logistics space. We have a couple of mobility projects going on. And so we're really just refining the user experience and spending a lot of time as well in the standards group. So with the Decentralized Identity Foundation, um, we just released our open source implementation of the SciTree protocol on Ethereum, which is what I was mentioning earlier regarding Microsoft. And we also just, um, we call that element and we also use that now in Transmute ID in our product. So we're spending a lot of time testing that as well and onboarding users. So that's what we're, we're up to from a product front. My time is spent um, starting to fundraise. So we do need to raise a priced round this year to basically add to our engineering team. And we're at a point where we, we need a separate customer-facing engineering team so we can kind of divide effort on just product versus customer deployments. And then you're talking to our only sales force right now. So um, <laughs> our partners and advisors are amazing, but we need more than that. <laughs> so that will be the thing that's next that I'm probably most excited about. So you're saying you'll be busy? Yes. (laughs) Well, Carol, thanks so much for joining us today. If folks want to follow along with you or with Transmute, where's the best place to do that? 
Yeah. So our Twitter uh, for Transmute is Transmute News. So at Transmute News, I'm at the Carol, spelled T-H-E-K-A-R-Y-L. And then Transmute News is also on Medium. And we post monthly about our technical updates. I've started to publish more about kind of lessons learned, um, things that we pitched that were really novel that didn't work out because they weren't framed appropriately for the enterprise. And then our head of product and my CTO have been publishing a lot of really, really tactical learnings as well. So I would say our, our blog and Twitter are the best place to follow us. Well, that's great. We're going to be sure to follow along with you and best of luck. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode of Giant Robots at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at lindsay3d. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.